This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Keeping Mysteries Mysterious. Shackleton and the Mythos. Black Venus. And the Mother of All Stock Shorts. Remember that Dinosaur 5e game we were talking about? Hmm, you mean the one from Atlas Games, uh, Plane something? It's Plane Gia, Robin. The Star Shaman Song of Plane Gia, to be exact. Oh yes, the prehistoric setting for 5e. Well, you can dive into Stone Age fantasy role-playing right now! Tell me more! The digital version of the core book has dropped, so you can order it now for immediate download from Atlas Games. That's awesome! Dare you say Dinorific? I do dare say dinorific. There's the plain Gia core book PDF, plus the heart-pounding adventure Lair of the Night Thing in PDF, and the custom-created soundtrack featuring 54 separate tracks called the Songs of the Stone Age. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, Peter Frampton coming alive, the saxophones coming up on the soundtrack, the laser sight slowly tracking across the table, welcome us into a stylized, dare I say, Soderberghian installment of the Gaming Hut, because beloved Patreon backer Stephen Dosman wants to know about competence and improvisation, specifically asking, in a point-spend-based RPG, which assumes a high degree of PC competence, such as Knight's Black Agents, any interaction with the adversary risks unraveling the mystery prematurely if the PCs want it badly enough through point spends and MOS. A tale can be counter-surveilled and traced back to the big bad. A fleeing moot can be tailed, etc. If this occurs, and if shifting the interesting aspects of the mystery elsewhere on the fly is not practical, then what strategies do Ken and Robin suggest for the GM for handling the situation. Robin? So the solution is very often built into the structure of different gumshoe games, none of which typically simply concludes <laughs> with the solution to the mystery. So there, you will notice there is no cozy mysteries, Agatha Christie style classic gumshoe game, because that game would have exactly that problem. But typically, the mystery leads you to a certain point and then you face a conflict or a decision, and the nature of that conflict and decision, again, depends on the genre. So the most obvious thing is you solve the mystery, and then there's a fight. Or, you know, in Ash and Stars, then there's an interstellar moral dilemma, which might or might not lead you to a fight. You know, in The Yellow King, you discover what the problem of the reality horror is, and then the question is, well, now what do you do about it? And... Uh, in Knight's Black Agents, the main mystery often is who's trying to kill me and why. And if you discover that, well, again, what am I going to do about this person who's trying to uh, kill me now that I know why they're trying to do it? How do I turn the tables on them? And, and how, how else can I uncover information to figure out what's going on? So the mystery, as Stephen suggests, is often very difficult to adjust on the fly. But the consequences of the mystery 
leads you more into improv territory. And often the scenario will be, and here's three things that could happen once they solve the mystery. Be ready. It's easier to to improvise. So in a way, this is kind of already baked into the structure. Yeah, the in Night's Black Agent specifically, finding the big bad early gets you into a fight scene in which you are in very grave danger of dying. So what the game almost organically changes its nature from solve this mysterious problem, find this shadowy figure, to best case scenario, a quick retreat, and then a takedown scenario where you know who the big bad is. The big bad is Terry Benedict. The big bad is, you know, that big vampire that's running the European Union or whatever. And you have to then figure out how to chip away at their power and increase your own leverage such that the next time you fight, you will not be wiped up by his, you know, hordes of Renfields and werewolves or whatever else he has backing his play. So, you know, the Knights Black Agents, and again, mostly because of its deep embedding in films that do this sort of uh, narrative switcheroo, kind of handles it uh, almost organically. I, the, the director, you know, probably shouldn't have planned three sessions of meticulous uncovering if uh, the players short-circuit it and should be ready to, at the very least, run a salutary fight. But the rhythm of Knights Black Agents specifically is the reward for information is danger. And if you've accidentally found more information than you can carry, well, guess what the reward is? Right. So since we both arrived at the same answer <laughs> and we need the segment to be more than uh, 15 minutes long, uh, let's more than six go through an long. example <laughs> of how to do this. So the mystery is, the twist is that you think that the uh, vampires are the arms dealers in uh, Sebritznitsa, but really they turn out, you discover through the course of the scenario, the big reveal is that actually it's the envoy from the EU. And so let us imagine then that although the adventure anticipates that it will take you several scenes to get that information, that the players with a combination of point spends and clever actions and stuff that just should make sense and will feel like a cheat if you don't do it, works it out right away. Or even just, you know, intuits that. And so what then is an example of practically adjusting for that surprise change of pace due to player action? Well, I mean, the the practicalities, first of all, are you need something to do next. And again, the the patron saint of this show, uh, Raymond Chandler, is there to say two men with guns burst in. You found that out about the EU envoy. Well, guess what EU envoys come equipped with? Large, angry teams of French uh, Marines. And so the, uh, you know, even if they're not vampirically bound Marines, even if they're not Renfield Marines, they still don't want nosy strangers pestering the EU envoy. So they go after you and maybe they warn you to back off Jack or, or excuse me, back off Jacques, or maybe they just you know, machine gun your car because you look like the kind of people whose car needs a good ventilating. Either way, you've got a secondary fight that they have to resolve before they can act on the knowledge, which hopefully gives you the time to think of how does the EU vampire respond? Is it arrogance? Does he just turn into dust and disappear? Does he call in a American airstrike? What's his you know, what's his goal? What does he have available to him? And how much can he escalate if he needs to? And once you've decided those three things, then yeah, uh, let the players, you know, pick their next move after they're, you know, emerging from the bullet ridden wreck of their Mercedes or whatever. And other than a fight, there's all sorts of other things that you can introduce that can feel like they were supposed to be there all along. 
uh, that introduce a new complication that the players have to deal with in order to keep the current moment sufficiently far from the ending. And so, for example, as they start shift from trying to figure out who's trying to kill them to then gathering the information on how do I counter this person, a third force could enter. So you could have, you know, the CIA guy show up and say, well, kind of seems like Jacques, who we've been investigating, uh, wants to kill you. And we're not too happy with Jacques either, but we need him for this other thing. So I'm afraid you guys are going to have to back off. And so that creates a, another problem that causes the, the players to have to, oh, now I have to get the information that helps me get the CIA out of this situation so that I can then go after the main guy. Or you can, again, look at thriller movies and see what additional complications that they start to bring in uh, sort of in the middle of the second act. So uh, someone important to you, someone you care about, someone you're trying to protect, uh, suddenly the EU guy kidnaps that person and takes them off uh, to a, a redoubt, you know, because if you know who Jacques is, Jacques maybe knows who you are, and he is also making counter moves, and then uh, the game of cat and mouse can go in. So instead of, you know, going and just storming his motorcade when he moves from the hotel to the embassy, so, oh, no, no, we've got to go to the country house and uh, save the doctor. Right. Another option is to increase the scope. This works really well if this was just one scenario as opposed to the entire campaign that you short-circuited or beheaded. But if, as you say in the scenario, you've discovered that the vampire on site is the EU envoy and you weren't planning to reveal that there's two warring clans of vampires, one of them embedded within the Russian government until later, well, now you can. Suddenly Jacques has become vulnerable. He's foolishly allowed a bunch of two-bit Helsings to unsmoke him. That means that the Russian vampire, the Orlock that's behind the Wagner group, can move his assets in and seize whatever is going on in Srebrenica that the uh, that Jacques is there to protect or do. And suddenly you can throw it into a Yojimbo situation where, oh, now we have two horrible forces. And if we decapitate Jacques, we're just doing the bidding of these hideous Russian vampires. And if anything, we like them less than we liked Jacques. And we didn't like Jacques at all. Right. And so, again, in all sorts of other games, you can do the same thing of, of extending the post-mystery action and also building in another additional mystery on top of that. And so, if you find out that the Duke of Deception, a powerful Carcosin, is responsible for the strange doings at the startup company and the initial plan was for that to happen, you know, in hour three of the session, but they figure it out in hour 1.5, then drop in uh, some other third force or complicating factor. And one thing that you can do, whatever the genre again, is sort of just introduce as a point of information, your sort of backup plan to extend the finale, the rest of the action, if you have to. So uh, you can suggest, in the case of your example, that the the Russians are moving around and they're a factor. And uh, if you don't need them, that, you know, is just a, a red herring. And if you do need them, you are cleverly laying pipe. You were setting that up. And one thing, though, that I think I should say is that you are much more likely to have the opposite problem where things that the players take a lot longer to solve the mystery than you think that they will. <laughs> and if there's a pacing problem that results from that at all, it's that, you know, not the danger is much more often, not that they will solve it in hour one and a half, but they'll solve it in hour five of a four hour session, meaning that you carry over 
to the next week, and then there's only an hour worth of mystery. And so then you're faced with the sort of opposite problem of, do I let it all wrap up in the allotted time? Or again, have I taken the extra week that I've been given to complicate things or just, you know, have that mystery wrap up, but then lead into another bigger mystery because it makes entire sense for something like Night's Black Agents or even like a reality conspiracy horror like uh, Yellow King for the, you know, you're discovering the supposed big bad last week just leads you to another big bad. So it, it helps, I guess, to prepare in either eventuality, whether they, whether they get there too fast or too slow, you, it helps to sort of have in the back of your mind ahead of time where you're going to go with this because that could well happen. Yeah, you could also, there's other questions than who is behind this. There's what do they want? What are they uh, doing? That kind of thing. How and do I kill them? How do I kill them? But if you haven't solved the what do they want problem, yeah, you've identified that, you know, the, the top vampire in the area, but his second in command or his ambitious rival also knows what they want. And they're perfectly happy to feed you Jacques if that means they can go on and uh, rescue the stone of Srebrenica from the crypt under the shelled out church or whatever. And then, you know, you've congratulations. You've fought a very bloody, horrible battle against a vampire, but the actual goal of the bad guys has been achieved by the vampires, uh, Weasley adjutant or whatever. And it's unlikely that you've solved everything about the conspiracy with one MOS is what I'll say. And you can generally, you know, think to yourself, who else knows? Who else can react? And do they react by helping out Jacques or do they react by moving ahead with their own agenda? And by knowing what the bad guy's agenda is, which you should have known at the beginning anyway, you can begin to see, well, the bad guys, as you say, know that Jacques has been made. What's their counter? Is it Jacques, maybe, as you say, kidnaps the beloved doctor and forts up in the old uh, NATO compound? But, you know, Jacques' adjutant, the local uh, warlord, he goes off and he is able to, you know, have free action now because Jacques's not there yanking his chain. Right. And, and I guess the most in-genre response to premature or delayed and then realized uh, revelation of the main antagonist is, you know, the sniper rifle from a, from a distance. And, you, you know, you've caught up with the EU vampire and then boom, he gets one, a little stake bullet behind the eyes and mm -hmm. he slumps down and now... Suddenly, you're trying to figure out who killed the guy that you went there to kill because you have a feeling not your friend, or he yeah. would have told you ahead of time and give you a heads up. Uh, well, on that note, I think a segment about pacing uh, has to end at the <laughs> correct time. So uh, let's get out of here and see what other very chilly hut awaits us on the other side. down foul sorcerers in a corrupt city clamber through underground ruins infiltrate the treasure vault of your decadent rival backstab your way to power and influence in swords of the serpentine the gumshoe game of swords and sorcery investigation and intrigue by kevin culp and emily dresner and your mighty feud pals at pelgrane press Strap on your blades for danger and forbidden knowledge. Tap into the corrupting source of sorcery 
for knowledge and power. Sharpen your tongue for the rigors of social combat. Prophesy secrets from the past, present, or future. Seek glory, justice, or the chance to live another day on the winding streets of Eversink. That's Swords of the Serpentine. Available now from Pelgrane Press. It's time for that most eldritch of huts, the most alienating cosmic one, where we've made the mistake of looking into the truth of the universe, and it has looked back at us and judged us uh, insignificant, because we are in the Mythos Hut. And this time around, esteemed Patreon backer Joshua Randall wants to know about Shackleton, the Endurance, and the Mythos. In 1914, Sir Ernest Shackleton set off on the ship Endurance to attempt to make the first land crossing of the Antarctic continent. The Veilout tells us that a ship became beset in the ice of the Weddell Sea and was eventually crushed. What was the true mythos-related purpose of the expedition? What really destroyed the ship? And what is the supernatural reason for the miraculous survival of every single man on the expedition? Because it's such a horrible story that I had to remind myself during the research, oh yeah, everybody did survive. I always <laughs> thought of that. I guess I'm mixing it up with the Franklin expedition, but it's a crazy story of survival set, I think, where we know there are Shagaths and horrible mountains. It is that. Ernest Shackleton is a character, and it is not necessarily the most remote reach in the world to say that an Antarctic explorer during the heroic age of Antarctic exploration, one in fact name-checked in At the Mountains of Madness, stumbled on something freezy and yithy, or freezy and kadathy. But yeah, as I mentioned, he was Irish, and so he had a a sort of a love-hate relationship with the sort of British exploring establishment. He had to sort of go raise all the money for all of his expeditions. In 1901, he joined the Discovery Expedition under Robert Falcon Scott, the rich, fat kid from across the lake of Antarctic Expedition. The interesting thing to us, besides the fact that Scott and Shackleton became quiet, mortal enemies after that expedition was over, the second-in-command of the Discovery was a fellow named Albert Armitage, Robin, which I discovered during my research, and that'll cause a little chin stroking right there. Mm. In 1907, he gets the money together, uh, or have the money together, to start his own expedition called the Nimrod Expedition after its ship, and they uh, sail to McMurdo Sound, which he had pinky sworn to Scott that he would not go back to, because that was Scott's sound, not Shackleton's sound. They're like two kids with the tape across the bedroom of Antarctica. And what with one thing and another, it turns out the only place they could land was, guess what, McMurdo Sound. So screw you, Robert Falcon Scott. And on that expedition, they climb Mount Erebus, which is the volcano, the active volcano there by uh, McMurdo Sound, and also is mentioned in At the Mountains of Madness and identified with Edgar Allan Poe's Mount Yannick. So uh, Mount Yannick, of course, is at the North Pole in Edgar Allan Poe. So there's already some chin-stroking, pole-switching chicanery going on in Pole Poe. inversion. It's, it's yep. a common thing when the Shagath's around. So he comes back from the Nimrod expedition and is famous for his climbing the volcano, getting farther south than anyone has ever gotten. They're 100 miles from the pole before they turn around because they're basically out of food. And they, they go back to McMurdo Sound and sail away. And one of the rewards of his new fame is a mining concern. He gets a uh, part ownership of a gold mine and silver mine at Anagi Banya, now known as Bayamare, in northern Transylvania, Robin. So he's going to 
uh, Charles Dexter Ward country a little bit as well. Going to dig around in Transylvania. I wonder what he's looking for down there. Uh, in 1918, he's on a wartime mission to Spitsbergen at the behest of the British Navy, and they sent him up to Spitsbergen. And again, if we remember in Shadow Out of Time, Peasley, while under the impetus of the great race of Yith, goes up to Spitsbergen. Uh, question mark, question mark. When he comes back from that, he wants to launch another expedition. Uh, he proposes one to the Beaufort Sea. Robin, this is in your neck of the woods because it's... <laughs> yes, I'm very close to the Arctic. Well, you're, I, as a Canadian, I feel like, don't you guys all believe the Arctic Circle is like your hat? Well, in actual fact, we all cluster as far away from the Arctic Circle as we possibly can on the 100-mile line of the border with the U.S. But, uh, yeah, spiritually, yeah. it's it's a... It's our threatening hat. It's a, it's the doom you should not go to. So, of course, Shackleton would think about going right. to another icy doom. That was his uh, forte. And he's specifically looking for, quote, undiscovered land masses in the Beaufort Sea. And I just want to point up that that's the area of Lomar, the first empire of humanity. And Lovecraft's era is up in that neck of the woods. So perhaps he's looking for Lomar or Zabna, the homeland of the Lomarians, even farther north. Who can say? But he doesn't get to go there because the Canadian government changes and says, no, no Britisher is going to go here. And Shacklin can't say I'm Irish by now because he's already accepted a knighthood. So the final expedition that he does is to Antarctica again in 1921. It is to uh, the ship coast is the name of the, of the ship. It's to map lost Antarctic and sub Antarctic islands. For example, a island, a group or island called Tuanaki that was supposedly somewhere to the south of the Cook Islands. And it appeared and disappeared in the 1840s, which, of course, is prime Innsmouth trading time. So, Scott, in addition to never setting foot on Antarctica at all on the famous endurance expedition, he, you know, was famously frozen in ice. The ice floated him up to Elephant Island and he had to get in a small boat to South Georgia to rescue his men. Very heroic, but nothing particularly Antarctic about it at all. But the rest of his career very much does look like a guy teasing around the quarters of the mythos and perhaps in league with British naval intelligence, who he worked openly for during World War I, or maybe for one of the many Scots and Irish millionaires who backed his expeditions. And it's perhaps interesting that a fellow named, I believe, Rownit, uh, who'd never shown any interest in Antarctic expedition before, basically paid entirely for the final expedition, put it all on his, you know, capacious check we and said, Antarctica's on me, boys. So one can maybe suspect there is some sort of mythos society or mythos collecting billionaire, millionaire who is out there looking for stuff. I should cite prior art in this field. There's a novella called The Elder Ice by a guy named David Hambling, in which a uh, private eye uncovers the fact that Shackleton went to Antarctica specifically to find a mythos artifact and carries it back to England with him and hides it amongst his stuff. The mythos artifact is, uh, is described as the lamp of Aladdin, meaning that it controls the slave of the lamp, the spirit or astral entity that is bound into the Elder Things library. So it can reveal everything. It's, it basically finds a cell phone from the Elder Things and brings it back to be accessed by someone with the Elder sign who can control it. So, so basically the answer here is that Shackleton was a player character. Yep. He was a player character who found in an obscure supplement the Arctic Explorer character kit and chose it 
and the, the GM wasn't thinking fast enough. I, I don't know how many Arctic explorations I'll be able to... Oh, no, here we go. And so, uh, obviously, this is a whole string of uh, adventures that uh, he had uh, prior, mostly, to the call and especially the trail eras. But another part of the story, of course, is that the wreck of the Endurance was discovered uh, on the seafloor on March 5th of this year. And it was just, according to uh, uh, Joshua, just over 97 years to the day that Henry Wilcox sculpted Cthulhu. So what does the discovery of this ship pretend? I guess, first of all, which entity, you know, nearly finished off Shackleton and, and was thwarted because of his player characterness? Well, I think that if he is on the Nimrod expedition, because that's the one where he actually goes deep into Antarctica and nowhere near the mountains of madness per se, but of course, you know, Antarctica is just covered with elder thing ruins, one assumes. That's where he finds the star stone or the artifact and he brings it back to Antarctica in 1914 and doesn't have the control codes right in the sort of half-assed way that he uh, mounted all of his expeditions until 1921. And the, the endurance was famously sort of cobbled together at the last minute. They, you know, were like, well, we'll pick up all the stores we need when we can. Didn't work. So he doesn't have the right control codes. One assumes a Shoggoth that's down there beneath the, the Weddell Sea sort of uh, rears up and, you know, says, intruder detected, <laughs> and uh, crushes his ship. And then, you know, only through his brave action do they get off in time and flee to Elephant Island. Right. So we have to assume then that there are dormant Shoggoth fragments on the ship and that uh, the people who brought it up are uh, perhaps have already encountered it, but if not, that it's about to you know, become undormant and uh, launch an attack on contemporary player characters probably at any moment. Yeah, it could happen. Um, certainly, if you've got wood from the Endurance that's been down there held uh, in isolation by the uh, icy waters of the deep Antarctic, it would have some kind of parasites in the wood, uh, borer worms and that kind of thing. And they would have, of course, carried with them Shoggoth DNA. And so, you know, it may be that Right now, the Shoggoth DNA is just sort of questing around, trying to figure out what it needs to do. So it's slowly uh, infiltrating all the wood structures in the museum or university or whoever's got the piece of the endurance. But at some point, it's going to drill through that one hole to another part of the museum, and it's going to see another old mythos control code that was stored as a enigmatic ritual object found in Turkey, and that's going to activate, and the Shoggoth is going to basically be doing a, a an algorithm that is to defend against some foe that might not even be there. The Shoggoth doesn't know, but eventually enough Shoggoth is going to appear or be uh, made out of all the people it eats to get the ability to direct its own actions without telepathic codes. And that's when you really have a problem. That's when it becomes the relic, Peter Hyams, uh, 1980, whatever it was. And uh, they start schlooping around eating uh, uh, Penelope Ann Miller. Well, I think it's time for us to uh, go warn Penelope Ann Miller and then come back after an exciting commercial to the segment that comes after this segment. The best 
of Ask the Geln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Save this podcast from a premature ending by allying with such beloved Patreon backers as Christian Gronseth, Aries Stormbringer, Eric, Speaker in Digressions, Evan Hughes, and Garrett Fitzgerald. The retinal scan that you had to undergo, and then of course the extensive background check to listen to this segment, uh, you already know that this is the Tradecraft Hut, and this time around I have learned of a topic and once more thrown it to Ken to dig deeper into. Uh, so this is the story of the, the South Korean spy named Black Venus. His real name is Park Chae-so. And there's a movie, I, I think, interestingly fictionalized based on his story that leaves out some of the weirder details and simplifies things a bit. It's called The Spy Gone North. It's from 2018. It's directed by Yoon Jong-bin. It was one of the many fun discoveries of the Robin and Valor International Film Festival a few weeks back. And it's a crazy story in its own right. Uh, so let's talk about the, the real story of Black Venus, uh, which, of course, unlike a, a fictional film, which can decide what reality is, this is a spy story. So there's a lot of this spy said, this other spy said the opposite. Mm -hmm. So Ken, tell us about Park Chae-so. To begin with, I was confident that he was born in 1954 until I saw another contradictory statement. He was born in 1957. So we begin as we mean to go on. Uh, he joins Korean military intelligence in 1990. One assumes that he did his mandatory, you know, military service. But then as a clear thinking adult joins military intelligence, at that point, he says that he has partnered up with the American Defense Intelligence Agency to investigate the North Korean nuclear program and the rumors thereof. And remember, this is in the 90s, so it was not the certainty thereof. The way he goes about it is he finds a scientist who is of Korean descent, but living in and one assumes working for communist China, meets him, gets on his good side by being Koreans together and by Chinese guy thinking maybe helping North Korea build nuclear weapons is not going to be in the long-term best interest of China. And that scientist does in fact confirm that North Korea began its program actively in 1991 and probably had a working nuke by 92. And this is the first time that Park Chae-so in his autobiography from which the Spy Gone North is made says something that can't be checked, but he says well, I just went back to my DIA guy and told him, and I counted on him telling the South Korean government. And it turns out, what do you know? He didn't do it. He called uh, the Americans and they didn't tell South Korea. So when North Korea, you know, lit off their demo nuke in 1994, South Korea was surprised and, uh, and dumbfounded, but it wasn't my fault. I feel like best case scenario, of course, he told his bosses. You don't be a spy and be told, just tell the Americans they'll take care of us. I mean, the British don't even do that, much less 
South Korea. And so <laughs> I think he told his bosses and his bosses screwed it up the way that intelligence apparatus always screw things up. So anyway, possibly as a result of this disillusionment with military intelligence, he moves over to work for the ANSP, the Agency for National Security Planning, nicknamed Ankibu after the Korean words that make up Agency for National Security Planning. And uh, he moves into their embrace. That's the former Korean CIA. It's the Foreign Intelligence Unit. Uh, This is in 1995. This is where he gets the code name Black Venus. He's sent back into China, where he's obviously been building up contacts. So while in China, his cover is that he's a South Korean businessman, former military intelligence, who is disgruntled with military intelligence. Uh, The best cover is always the truth, I feel. Right. Because they they just (laughs) like, oh, yeah, that that makes sense that this guy would be mad at our enemies. Sure. yeah. Yeah. He wouldn't still be working with them. That would be implausible. Well, they probably have South Korean military intelligence penetrated. They go and they ask, they say, that jerk, he's trying to claim he told us about the nukes, and he never did. So he's uh, back in China. His disguise is basically as a fixer and a businessman. What he does is he puts together Chinese exports to South Korea, mostly of food, which he fraudulently certifies as coming from North Korea. And if North Korea exports something to South Korea, there's no tariff on it. So everyone saves money. So he's starts with fraudulent. Yeah, and the North Koreans get a cut. Well, yes, obviously, because they have to have a stamp somehow. Yeah. And so uh, from that basis, he moves to selling fake Rolexes to smuggling jades out of North Korea. North Korea sits on gigantic piles of uh, archaeological uh, significance. Right. And, and you can bet he gives a lot of those fake Rolexes without telling them they're fake to yeah. all of these contacts that he's meeting. Right. So he's basically becomes a fixer for this uh, traffic in antique jade, which goes either to Chinese collectors or in many cases to South Korean collectors. And he was told that he uh, was taken to a mountain by a North Korean figure and shown just endless fields of jade just littering the place that they dug out of it and just left there. He said that he saw a billion dollars worth of antique jades on the side of this mountain, which right. is... Although if you sold it all at once, it wouldn't be worth a no, billion it's, anymore. Like, it's how De Beers doesn't somehow sell all their diamonds at once. Yeah. So anyway, this these contacts let him pay the fines or the uh, gambling debts, one assumes, to a fellow named Jang, who is the nephew-in-law of Kim Jong-il, the guy who runs North Korea. And Kim Jong-il's son-in-law, the father of this fellow, is a guy named Jang Song-thek, who at the time headed the North Korean secret police. So this is, you know, well worth the $135,000 it costs to get this guy out of prison is now that Jang Song-thek owes you one. And the Jang family starts hanging around with him. They become buddies. They invite him to Pyongyang all the time. That moves him into a much higher uh, circle of antique jade selling. And he gets a license to film commercials for his alleged businesses in North Korea and go to various holy and culturally significant sites. So he's wandering around, one assumes, continuing to meet and greet, build up his network until the pinnacle of his experience is in 1997, where he's doing such a big jade deal that Kim Jong-il himself has to get his feet wet in it. And so he meets Kim Jong-il at Kim Jong's summer palace to close the jade deal and uh, records the meeting with, allegedly, a recorder hidden, and male readers may want to avert their eyes, or male listeners, definitely, hidden in his urethra, Robin. A detail too weird to go in the film. Yeah, and also 
one that I think would derail anything that was said at that meeting. Yes. I, our, our audio editor, <laughs> I, I think, would be very upset with those uh, recording conditions. Yeah, he would. He would not like it. But I assume that you know they're they're dealing with uh, top people at Samsung or wherever who can do it. He explains that while in North Korea, we were trained to kill ourselves with our own fingers. Didn't need a cyanide pill like those loser agencies that won't kill yourself with your own finger. I feel like once you've put a recorder in your urethra, sure, why not? <laughs> Just go ahead, you know, punch the button, shut everything down. And then is during these very high-level meetings that he discovers a bunch of North Koreans counting $3.6 million in bribes from backers of the uh, presidential candidate in South Korea, Lee Hoi Chang, to launch a cross-border attack ahead of the 1997 South Korean election, which obviously would swing the election to the conservative favorite, which is Lee Hoi Chang. This is like Watergate. This is one of those conspiracies that you pull when you're going to win in a landslide. And in Nixon's case, obviously, he was able to keep it secret for a little bit longer. But in this case, Park Chae-so says, oh, I not only told my bosses, I told the other candidate. I told Kim Dae-jung's people that this happened. And so the attack didn't go off. And then the ANSP, trying to blackmail the new South Korean president, Kim Dae-jung, assembled a big dossier of this is what the ANSP is up to with a sort of veiled threat of play ball or else we'll do it to you like we did to previous presidents of South Korea. And this is one of these plots so Byzantine and absurd that you would think it would only be in a Tom Clancy novel that, yeah. you know, they were actually paying off their hated ideological rivals to do the missolid and their rivals are like 3.6. Yeah. Yeah. I'll do that. That's, but it happened. Yeah. There was certainly, certainly three people were tried for it. Uh, the backers in question, uh, Lee Hoi Chang said, Oh, I've never heard of such a thing. That would be awful. And then loses the election, but the uh, backers were then found not guilty. So, you know, did it happen where they got off by powerful interests? I believe you can believe maximum venality from everyone. And right. You're never because wrong. that wasn't the only incident, right? It became so common for North Korea to launch various aggressive actions right around elections that people caught on to it. It was called the North Wind. Yeah. And once they caught on to it in a remarkable feat of voters actually being skeptical and taking information into account started to discount that and became yeah. cynical about it and it stopped working. And now uh, I did read a little more that one of the reasons that the North Koreans might have wanted to throw it to Lee Hoi Chang is the old, well, we know him, we know his people. Kim Dae-jung would have been new right. and the way that Kim Dae-jung might not have given us 3.6 million, but also right, he might, it might not have needed it next time. And the way that Kim Dae-jung had maintained credibility as the head of the left party was to fearsomely oppose communist influence in his party. So Kim Dae-jung, once he becomes president, of course, would have to mount an anti-communist purge just to show that he was not in fact a, a, a wet pro-North weasel. And they don't know about his people. So they might've actually lost people in that purge. So the important thing was to keep the guy that they knew who, as you say, has $3.6 million lying around for bribes in power. So it's not just a, you know, North Korea had no interest in this. North Korea also had their own domestic interest in this. It was, you know, a meeting of minds, really. Right. Hardliners like working with each other because yeah. they, they can 
understand each other because they mirror each other's thinking and because they've been working with each other in the Korean case for 40 years. Yeah. So the, the end result of all these machinations is he's fired by the ANSP either as he says, because his cover is blown by them or because he blew his own cover leaking this bribe move. But rather than settle into some idyllic garden in uh, Busan or somewhere, he moves to Beijing, which is where I begin to scratch my chin and say, all right, the first time this guy is on the outs with an intel agency and moves to Beijing, it was cover for intelligence work. Hmm, what's going on? So he moves to Beijing. Uh, he still is meeting with Jang Song-thek. Jang Song-thek is not uh, purged yet. He's briefly purged in 2003, and then, spoiler, he's executed in 2013. But he's still a deal. He's still meeting with Jang Song-thek. Maybe he's still in the business because he's arrested in 2010 by the South Koreans and convicted of passing classified info, allegedly the U.S. South Korean defense plan, which is not a small ball thing, to North Korea. And his defense was, I was always authorized to pass chicken feed to North Korea to maintain my credibility as a angry defector. And the South Koreans said, yeah, this is not chicken feed. This is the most important thing that we have. Right. And he also argued that it was retribution for the whistleblowing. Right. Yes. That th there's a lot of reasons to arrest this guy. Um, again, we're over-determining ourselves. But he winds up in, so in solitary confinement until 2016 when he's released. And now he gives interviews saying, well, I'm not going to make that mistake anymore. I've got copies of my urethra tapes and one assumes other tapes uh, surely Song. they will be marketed under that name. Yes. If he's, if he wants to, if he wants to sell in Germany, they will. But he's got, uh, his Jang Song Thet tapes. One assumes other tapes. The implication is maybe tapes of ANSP heads saying indecorous things. Because once you've, once you've recorded things on your urethra, you can't go back. I understand. So this is allegedly his insurance against being rearrested and reconfined in solitary fashion. But is it a bluff? Is it that the arrest and the solitary confinement were also running a double bluff on Korea? Was this part of why Jung Song Thek suddenly gets unpersoned and then unlived by the North Koreans in 2013 as a result of this operation? Is he still working with the uh, Korean intelligence community? Is he working for the Chinese? Who knows? He remains a beautiful enigma. Well, and don't uh, talk to him in the men's room, as I guess my advice. <laughs> Well, or anywhere. Or anywhere. Uh, really. In the men's yeah. room might be the one place you're safe. Yeah. So, this is an example of, you know, just like Korean movies, uh, they always have an other interesting twist because they can always bring in the North-South thing into it. Korean actual spy stories always have fascinating Byzantine details. And so, this is one that, uh, you know, if you're familiar enough with Korean culture to uh, run adventures uh, set there, probably bet you have to be Korean to do that, that that opens up an entire uh, range of fun new plot twists that you can add. And this story is certainly would be uh, fun to have in the background or, you know, you could easily nerd trope it in that your characters are not shooting commercials in hopes that the nuclear plant in the background can be, you know, framed in some of the B-roll, but rather, you know, you're looking for the sleeping kaiju in the mountain or, or whatever it is that you've uh, nerd troped your Korean spy hijinks with. Or you're trying to recover the, the magic jade from that mountain. Yes. The, the jade may be more important than the nuclear secrets in a uh, genre-fied version. Well, on that note, I think it's time for us to uh, creep around this corner and see if there's yet a fourth corner to this podcast.
Delta Green Iconoclast, a campaign of horrors modern and ancient, brings a team of agents to a scene of terrors all too real. Mosul in 2016, held by the self-styled Islamic State in a reign of depraved brutality. From a small base at the Kirkuk airfield, the agents must research the horrors to come and prepare for a harrowing infiltration. ISIL fighters destroy mysterious artifacts. A Delta Green veteran goes rogue. Hidden myths permeate the Battle of Mosul. A demon god beckoned by a bloodthirsty cult. Plus terrifying supplementary material. Rules and guidelines for spying, crime, and backroom deals. New rituals. New tomes. And the dreadful details of a threat to suit all the evils of humanity. Available now in PDF. Or in glistening hardback. Just around the corner from Dealey Plaza, on the square and on the level, we enter that most shadowy of all of our huts, a hut so shadowy it doesn't even have two more walls, because it is the Conspiracy Corner. And we've previously discussed the GameStop stock story. Well, as we have learned, if there is a way to get rich quick, Someone will make a religion out of it, or in this case, a conspiracy theory. So, Robin, you have done a dive into the mother of all short squeezes, or as it is called, the Moas. Right, the Moas, or or is part of stonk belief. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, we covered this in uh, Ripped from the Headlines, but it was so ripped from the headlines that we didn't wait for it to fully mature and get weird <laughs> enough. We, we so picked we it co- while it was green. We have to cover it again, because back then it was just... You know, a, a weird stock maneuver. So uh, this has been revealed to us by, uh, first of all, there's a crypto skeptic conspiracy debunking YouTube documentarian named Dan Olson, who's done a deep dive into it. And there's been a very popular series of threads on uh, Twitter by uh, Freddie Wong, uh, who is one of us. He's uh, one of the principals of the Dungeons and Daddies podcast, which is about four dads who go to the Forgotten Realms. And they have to very much assure you that it's not about the other thing. You think it could possibly be given that. Uh, but that title. doesn't mean they don't like the SEO. So go ahead and click that link. Right. And so to recap, in January 21st of last year, the shares of GameStop, a brick and mortar video game retailer, started to go through the roof when basically a bunch of Redditors got together. And by the way, thanks, Freddie Wong and to Dan Olson for reading Reddit so that we don't have to. <laughs> it was decided that because we love video games and this stock, we think it's it's underpriced. We can initiate a short squeeze because there's a lot of big hedge fund managers who are quite rightly looking at the brick and mortar retail model for video games and going, this business is going it's dead. <laughs> and again, we're going to go light on the detail of explaining what a short squeeze is. But basically, you can bet for or against a stock and you can also make money when the price of a stock goes up and those short sellers then have to cover their uh, bets against the stock by buying the stock at the higher value. So the thing that inevitably happens, though, is this can only happen for so long. And so eventually, the people who kind of engineered it or knew that it was coming or got out, but other people continue to get back in and buy GameStop after the whole squeeze had been executed. And so this becomes, I, I, this, I find this an interesting story because it's like a real-time development of a conspiracy theory slash set of cult beliefs that has evolved in a matter of months and follows the classic pattern all of the time. And so, you know, instead of a a mystical event, they're predicting 
an inexplicable financial event, but they're predicting an apocalyptic inbreak that comes in and changes everything in the world and rescues them. And so basically they began to argue that, first of all, that the solution to this problem of having gotten in too late is if you just buy more GameStop and hold on to it, that somehow the short sellers will then be forced to purchase back the stock and they can, and that the people who hold it can charge them any amount of money, can charge them $20 billion a share. This will collapse the U.S. economy. That's a good thing. That, that works in your favor. That's great. It's right out of Mr. Robot. Seems fine. And so we see that initially, you know, people were, you know, you know the definition of irrationality is uh, repeating an action that doesn't work until suddenly it does. And uh, so that basically the people behind this thought that there would be a big moment at the 2021 shareholder meeting where they would get to vote their shares and they would prevail somehow in this alternate reality of how they thought finance worked. And then it turned out they still only owned a fraction of the shares of this and the regular shareholders voted down whatever craziness they were for. And so this could only be the result of, guess what, Ken, guess what happens when a conspiracy prediction fails, it's a bigger conspiracy that screwed you. Exactly. And so they argued that the hedge funds got in there and colluded with the government and the finance system to save the U.S. economy, which, of course, they would do openly. <laughs> they were yeah. saving the U.S. economy. Imagine? But they amassed a lot of evidence for this. Uh, for example, the fact that if they look at Google Maps, at pictures of the uh, these banks and hedge funds at night, can the lights are on. Uh-oh. At night. At night. Yeah. That implies a meeting. But exactly the thing that they've said is happening is happening. Right. Not just the people in banks and finance work 24-7. Or that they have the cleaning staff in to clean. Right. But that they were obviously working on exactly that one thing. And, and, and now, one thing that previous conspiracy theorists haven't had on their side is they haven't had drones. But now, you can send a drone in to confirm that, yes, the lights are on in this place. And so, as follows... The classic pattern of a uh, a cult that needs a new reality to assert itself. When the new reality does not, that means that you have to create even more elaborate justifications to, to float to explain why it's not. And the psychological dynamic of this is that the more extreme the faith demand you're making of yourself, the bigger dopamine reward you get for sticking to it. And also, allegedly, you have spent all of your money on GameStop stock, but... There's also the question of how many of these people in these Reddits, which by this time have had a, a schisms, they, these sects have split into different sects, or at least subreddits. So people are claiming that they bought all this stock, but how many have, or how many are cosplaying as cultists? How much of this is a performative identity? And how yeah. much is being in the cult? How many of these people are putting their, their money where their mouth is? Because there's a lot of places to set money on fire in this period on the internet. And... I, I'm sure that the, you know, the most unfortunate people who were most gulled and most uh, lost because of this would have also spent it on some other thing like crypto or NFTs or something, unfortunately. Right. Or nootropic supplements from Alex Jones or whatever. Right. This, this sort of prosperity gospel cult, it, it's very reminiscent of the old Nasara conspiracy that we covered in episode 445 that some somewhat boring and complex financial chicanery can be jujitsued by us, the good folks of Reddit and common people into screwing over the big banksters and the bad guys who are normally the reason why we don't all have nice things and that our reward is not 
you know, a secret knowledge like it is for your Gnostic conspirators or the, you know, simple satisfaction of knowing the truth about the government the way that it is for Q or uh, Russia Gators or JFK murder theorists, but the satisfaction of getting a, a gigantic, literally fantastical payout uh, at the end. You you get money for being right. That there, There's nothing more American than this sort of belief must make you rich because otherwise what's the point of it right and i'm sure it's an international audience but also it's clearly americans are the main drivers here. right yeah well we're the main drivers of most things in culture i mean you can't really blame us for that we also made the marvel movies all right you can't blame us for that but anyway so this is obviously uh, another attempt to create a new reality so uh, again would fit in this is normal now and i think is I forget the plot lines we spun from this last time, but this may be crazier than any of them. And it makes me think of what, uh, you know, because most apocalyptic cults die out after the apocalypse fails to occur for the fifth or sixth or seventh time, but some have staying power. And so the question is, in a far future, what is a society like when this is a major denomination, right? Right. What when, is, the, when Moas becomes the um, uh, Seventh-day Adventists of the future, right? Right. And so the faith uh, behind it is obviously it's a, a, a prosperity cult. They will have to either use one of the people behind this or create one since everybody is very shadowy. They'll have to have a prophet and the sayings of the prophet will concern prophet, I'm sure. They appear in green text. Yes. And so you can imagine like a, a city state in a post-apocalyptic world where there's, you know, eventually the economy did collapse for the same reason that it always collapses in post-apocalyptic settings. Uh, but there's this one city where it's a, the Church of Moas. And uh, in this case, it's all, you know, we were right. This is why our city is so beautiful and prosperous. Oh, your city looks kind of terrible and it's on fire and uh, nobody has it. No, shut up. We're rich here. And so you could have sort of a, a Vancian thing where to describe your city as poor or having a class structure, because in this city, everybody is rich because we all made out during the collapse of the economy, uh, could be the, the thing where the a uh, player who points out that the emperor has new clothes is the one who gets uh, chased down by the by the cult. Yeah, and you're forbidden from downloading things, assuming downloading still works in this far future, because the you know the the way you proved faith was by believing in brick and mortar game stores, and so you can't download anything now. That's just your taboo, and so everything has to be carried around on physical media, and that can be the fun weird thing about this culture is that they've. They've still got bookstores and they've still got video stores and they've still got everything instead of keeping it on their genie cloud or whatever the civilized explorers have in the far future. And it may in fact be that the games that you play in this city state are the games of 2022 and they take on a, a ritual quality. Right. And so instead of esports, the election of the hierarch each year is determined by who wins. Uh, whatever the current version of Final Fantasy is or right. Call of Duty. And, uh, you know, the later versions are heresies that must not mm -hmm. only not be downloaded, but must be kept out of the city. And so you need, for some reason, in order to take over the city to get something for your own community. And so the big thing is, you know, hacking the system in order to give yourself an advantage to uh, win Call of Duty uh, 2022. It's like in uh, Never Say Never Again when they change the big game to a video game that uh, Bond has to win against... Uh What's his name? The bad guy. Yes. And, and so Drago, and not Drago. Anyway, it hardly matters. Drax. That's it. Maybe it's not Drax. Who is the bad guy at Thunderball? Well, we could be here all day with that. But the uh, notion of the video game becomes the, the jousting challenge. 
and you can make this as wild as you want. I mean, you can have a giant statue of Sonic the Hedgehog as they come in and everyone says, oh, that's that's the god of prosperity. And he moves so fast you can't even see him. But he it's leaves the god Moas. wonderful things behind him. He's Well, Moas is the belief structure. He's the god, right? It's, you know. Or, or Stonk is the belief structure. Stonk. So. Stonk I mean, is a Moas sounds like it should be the name of a god, right? You believe in you believe in Stonk, do you? Maybe you from the city around the bend that isn't so prosperous as us. You hater. Oh, your city looks terrible. You don't even have a sense. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. Sonic will crush you. <laughs> well, uh, since we've deified Sonic, <laughs> I don't think we can top that. Finally, the goal of this podcast after 10 years. Yes. Although I guess there's schisms. There's like teeth Sonic and, and not regular, teeth Sonic. And, yeah, regular oh, no, Sonic. We can't get into that. We've got to wrap this up. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Keep this podcast unsqueezed by joining such savvy backers as... Hyperlexic. Jonathan Donald. James Kiley. John Buckley. And Todd W. Olson. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at Teapot. Public.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our latest Mythos Rabbit design, Bunwitch Horror. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs>